this was something that has been in the back of my mind for a while, but it's, it's a pretty big topic, pretty, pretty daunting in its scope. And that's why on my social media post this morning, if you saw it, I even joked that this, we may get through it all, or this may be just part one, but I really do want to get through it because I think in the context of all the variables, it's helpful to see how they all work together. So the science of protein, what I think most people care about is, is first of all, how much, and as much as I think that has been a settled issue for quite a while, there, there's still a lot of noise out there and, and people, you know, maybe, maybe kind of late to the party academically that just don't have that information. So the recommended daily allowance of protein, and this has been the standard for quite a while, is, of course, 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So I wanted to use a, a thread of an example all the way through this. And so I picked just this perfectly hypothetical five, seven and a half, 175 pound, perfectly muscled, chiseled, 52 year old human specimen, just hypothetically. And so if you looked at that particular person, and hopefully you guys, you know, you can, you can follow these formulas and do your own math if you're interested uh, for yourselves. But a 175 pound person, if you, you know, divide that by 2.2 to get kilograms, and then you multiply that times, you know, 0.8, which is the RDA, that they would say, I need 64 grams of protein per day. That would be the recommended daily allowance. Now, that, that's going to be, you know, just unbelievably low to a lot of people listening to this. But at the same time, that's only one part of the puzzle. So I want to go a little bit deeper and show you guys, first of all, that there has been something for quite a, a few years, going all the way back, almost 20 years, actually, something that's been called the Protein Summit. And this has been a, a recurring academic gathering of different researchers around the world. And there has just been a concerted effort to try and modernize some of these recommendations and, and be more specific. So the, the Protein Summit 2.0 was, was the next iteration. I'll, I'll show you the difference here. The, the Protein Summit 1 was in 2007, and they gathered about 40 researchers in Washington, D.C. And I remember for my, I think it was my, my second doctoral dissertation um, in, in health education, I remember looking this up, and I was quite familiar with, with this particular uh, committee and, and study and so forth. And their biggest goal was to kind of widen that lens of the RDA to say, okay, this, this may be kind of the bullseye for the general population, or it may be the, the peak of the bell curve, but certainly there has to be other applications. So uh, they, 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 it, it's this first summit, they really did start investigating and asking those questions. And without getting into the details, I, I will say that there was almost a, a complete consensus that to get in the ball game of a healthy individual, somebody who's active, somebody who really cares about their nutrition, the RDA may be what you need to just survive, but to really thrive and be healthy, they, what came out of that conference was about two times the RDA. So now you would need about 1.6 grams of protein per kilograms of body weight. But in the second summit, they, they wanted to really pick things apart. They brought in some more people. They started looking at weight management, satiety, adherence, uh, what happens with metabolic activity. Is there really something to do with you know, the thermic effect of food? Uh, renal function, which is always a controversy with protein intake. Uh, bone health, aging, muscle loss, sarcopenia is, is normal wasting as we age. We, we actually, there's almost a, um, a genetic or a genomic um, you know, acceleration of muscle loss. And you see this in people who are very terminal, you know, especially with stage four cancer. So, so is there an application for, for different levels of protein for that group? And just, just, you know, athletes in general, what, where can we go with protein recommendations? So when you look at, you know, anything to do with nutrition and macronutrients and energy balance, if you're looking at dietetics, literature, or academics, you're, it's always going to be encompassed in this, this uh, you know, framework of dietary reference intakes. And, and it kind of cascades down into uh, you know, kind of a broadening. You, you start with that bullseye and then you kind of go out. So the recommended daily allowance 
it, it was was to make sure that 97 to 98% of the entire population would find their needs met there. You're going to be healthy. You're not going to die. You're not going to have some kind of weird disease as long as you get that RDA, which again, for me right now would be 64 grams. At a couple of these protein summits, though, and some subsequent research, they found that very specific pockets of our population were, were getting far less than that. So even though you as a you know, bodybuilder, a dieter, somebody who's very interested in, in physique, uh, aesthetic, as well as health and performance, athletics, you know, again, 64 grams seems pretty weird. You could, you could get that in one really big meal. Uh, you certainly get it in a couple protein servings a day, but yet there are a lot of people who just don't. So they, they looked also at the estimated average requirements. So let's, let's kind of broaden this out to say, okay, let's include some of those athletes. Let's include some of those populations. And then they said, well, you know, the, the RDA really only hits about 50% of the target population. That's why we need to update this. And what was never, ever looked at prior to this, and I don't think they even came out yet with actual standards of practice where they could say, this is what we recommend, an adequate intake, which is to, to really fulfill kind of everybody's needs, or at least pocket out all of those diverse populations and say, this is what you need, this is what you need, this is what you need, this is what you need. And another thing that they've never really agreed on is a tolerable upper limit. And uh, just a, a note, this was kind of fun for me as I was putting this together. Anybody who graduated from NAMS, the National Academy, Academy of Metabolic Science, you, you probably recognize these terms. This is something that was in your curriculum to, to study for and learn. So here it is in real life. You know, in, in the wild, you're seeing that, that people really do use these kind of standards and, and measurements. But let's, let's look at uh, what they decided when they kind of got a little bit more specific at the second protein summit. They decided that that actually moving up from the 0.8 grams of protein to, to 1 to 1.2 would actually be beneficial for most people. We, could, we can now kind of widen out that pocket, that circle of, of groups that we're going to affect and say that's that's actually important. You know, that's that we're going to at least say this is a place where the RDA probably should be as a minimum. And then they also started looking at things like, well, you know, if, if we're going to look at specialty populations, maybe, you know, we're looking at, at athletes and, and dieters, people in a calorie deficit. And this is where they started investigating some of the claims that, hey, maybe there's a minimum threshold need per meal. So 25 to 30 grams of protein in one single meal with at least a little bit above two grams of leucine actually starts to hit maximum threshold for protein synthesis, which is what we want if you're a powerlifter, bodybuilder, or somebody who just cares about retaining lean body mass. And they even said you could go all the way up to 1.5 grams, you know, that's almost double the RDA, if it's evenly distributed for renal function for older adults. So those who are getting into that age-related muscle loss, sarcopenia, you know, that they have found research that, that that's actually valuable, that it's not necessarily just a, a genetic muscle loss, but it can be prevented with increased protein. So then they had even another update of a special uh, kind of meeting of the protein summit where they wanted to look at, at some medical issues. And again, for sarcopenia and end stage cancer, people who are critically ill, look how high they went up. They said, we now have evidence that you could go all the way up to 2.5 grams. This is, this is now almost, or it is triple point. Yeah, it, it's three times the RDA. So one of the things also, again, if you're a NAMS graduate or student, you will see that I, I didn't put all of this research in there, but I make the general statement that there is research supporting up to three times the RDA. And there have been a, a few studies that have checked as high that I'm aware of as five times the RDA. And they really find that at three times the RDA, you're really starting to get pretty, pretty far down that other side of the bell curve where there's just not a lot of, of benefit for, for everybody. So I wanted to start um, this talk just, just with what is, is kind of standard language in the nutrition and dietetics world and the final conclusions and even cross-referencing this, this with Harvard Medical School and their position on this is that it, it, and, and there's kind of a, a switch. So, so the RDA, of course, is a you know percentage of, of your calories from protein. 
um, you know, extrapolate it into grams. But if you just back up and look at that percentage, if you said, if, if you looked at their final conclusion, 17 to 20% of calories from protein is what they say is probably a good target. I'm going to show you in a couple other meta analyses how this gets extended even further. But if you went up to, um, you know, even 35%, which, which in the same literature, even though the protein summit said that 17 to 21% is, is kind of that, that sweet spot, that's because the government at large, again, when you look at some of these, these governing bodies, they would say that the, the daily rate of use can be measured as low as 10% of calories all the way up to 35%. So that's, that's a wide margin to, to say to somebody, for your protein intake, I recommend 10 to 35%. Again, 10% could be a far, far, far minimum. That gets you close to the RDA. But up to 35%, uh, this is where you can, again, pinning this against the, the hypothetical that I used as myself, uh, if I consume 2,000 calories a day, which would be about right for me, 35% is 700 grams or 700 calories from protein, which is 175 grams of protein a day. So a far cry from 64. So the RDA would have me at 64 grams. If you use the top end of the adjusted um, you know, you know, RDA, again, you're, you're looking at just under three grams or, or, or three times that RDA. Now, here's an interesting little, little caveat. Uh, when I kind of grew up in the 80s and 90s in the world of bodybuilding, just looking at some of the magazines and, and the writers of these magazines who, of course, had zero science education, but it was just kind of the, the motif of the day to give, you know, very specific advice, even though they were not qualified to do so. And their test pool were always these great big IFBB bodybuilders, you know, Mr. Miss Olympia, whatever they're eating, that's what is going to be in Flex Magazine. And that's what all, you know, all the readers are doing as well. So th there was a point in my career where 250 grams of protein a day was a standard. I mean, I probably ate that much for at least a decade, maybe 15 more or more years in a row. Just that was, that was the norm for me. So far, far above even three times the RDA. And, uh, the irony is, and you guys who are part of our daily chats have heard me say this many times this year, uh, when I retired from pro competition, I just, I dropped my protein down to probably a hundred grams or less a day, just because, you know, I was done. Uh, I wasn't trying to lose muscle on purpose. I didn't quit lifting. Matter of fact, after I retired from the sport, I actually, you know, years later, got my personal best in a deadlift and so forth. So I was by no means done with the sport. But, but for several years, I would say probably almost another decade of eating 100 grams. Let's just call it an average of 100 grams. I've tracked my macros and I tested that. And that's about what I was eating. So from 225, 250 grams of protein a day to 100, I, and my strength was still just as high. I, I checked my body comp several times and I had lost about four or five pounds of lean body mass. All I did was go up to two times the RDA. And this is just one anecdotal little case study, but I, I went up to about 125, 130 grams of protein. So 64 would be the RDA for me. So, you know, getting up to about double that, which was only a meal of extra protein within three months I had regained all of that lost lean body mass. So after a decade of eating that low, and then just a couple of months of going back up to still half of what I consumed for 15 years as a pro bodybuilder, I was still able to get all of that same benefits. Now you could argue that during those formative years when I was gaining muscle and strength, that that extra protein did help. But let's, uh, let's see what some other studies uh, tell us. So you will recognize at least one name on this study, the, the leading author. And uh, so my friend, Eric Helms, uh, this was a few years ago, I think. When was this? Uh, 2000, uh, I don't know if it's off screen here, not 2013 maybe, uh, did a review, uh, a meta-analysis of dietary protein needs 
for lean and calorie restricted dieting bodybuilders, people who are lifting weights. And, and so, you know, really kind of looking at what a contest prep would be. And this was a meta-analysis. So he didn't, he didn't create this study as a, as a, as a design. But when you do a meta-analysis, you have to decide your inclusion criteria, what kind of studies are you going to look at, which ones are you going to discount and say, this doesn't fit our model. So here's, here's what he ended up doing. Uh, unfortunately, I think, you know, he only found six qualifying studies and, and maybe that's okay. I mean, that's, that's all. Well, actually, let me say this. I believe he started looking at over 1500, if I remember his chart. And yet to find people who were actually dieting, who were resistance trained in, in you know, just six months or more. So even that leaves a, a pretty broad swath of population. I wouldn't call six months of training very advanced, but at the same time, at least they, they were in the gym. Uh, lean athletes, and they wanted to, again, they're, they're calorie restricted, but the definition of lean here, uh, less than, I think I made those signs different, uh, less, less than 35% body fat for females, 23% for males. And they, they reduce body fat just in the, and this is just in the study in general, this wasn't a criteria point, you know, between half a percent up to almost 6%, which, you know, six lo losing almost 7% of your body fat is a pretty significant drop. But, um, but anyway, that's, that's the framework. Those are the studies he looked at to say, okay, can we decide if people who are experienced lifters still training very aggressively, somewhat lean and they're calorie restricted, do they need more protein? So a couple of the studies that, that he included in just his discussion points to, to kind of preempt the whole study is that he, he was looking for, for places where there was already some, some discussion about this. And one particular study showed that male athletes running up to 10 miles a day uh, in just a slight calorie deficit, but yet again, a lot of workload, they were in a significant negative nitrogen balance. That, that's when the amino acids in your bloodstream are so low that you're not anabolic. You're not able to recover. If, if your amino acid levels in your bloodstream get to a, a low enough level, then you're in a catabolic state. Now you're at risk of actually having to strip amino acids from your muscle tissue just to get your blood levels back up. So, so that negative nitrogen balance has always been a strong marker of what's happening in the body. Do you have a surplus? Are you in an anabolic state or are you catabolic in a, in a, in a lesser than normal homeostatic uh, level of, of amino acids? Nitrogen is just the compound that, that makes up amino acids. So another, well, first of all, they showed that those people were eating two grams of protein per uh, kilogram of body weight which is two and a half times the RDA. And yet those athletes still were achieving a negative nitrogen balance. Uh, and, and then another study showed that weightlifters and only a, a couple of them were in a, an actual calorie deficit, just being a competitive weightlifter, you know, half of them ended up in a negative nitrogen balance. So one of the things that I would contend if, if, if I were, in a room discussing research with people creating a meta-analysis review like this, I would say, well, what does a negative nitrogen balance mean anyway? I mean, we know physiologically why it happens. You, you eat a great big chicken breast and all of a sudden your blood amino acid levels go up. And so you're in a positive nitrogen balance. That means you have more amino acids in your bloodstream for recovery, for, for uh, conceivable strength and hypertrophy gain. But just because you hit a low point and maybe several low points, and again, if you're training really, really hard, uh, I would say, or running, you're, you're definitely going to hit those even if you have a lot of protein in your diet. You're going to have at least some point in your day. So you almost have to quantify this as, as how much of the day are you in that, that negative nitrogen balance. Because as we know in, in further research, that somebody who just eats protein around the clock, well, I'm never gonna be in a negative nitrogen balance. I'm gonna eat 10 times the RDA. I'm gonna have 40 grams of protein every hour, 24 hours a day. I am never gonna lose an ounce of muscle because I'm gonna eat that much protein. 
we know that you become very desensitized. Those receptor sites for protein become desensitized. And like any other chemical response, you need more and more and more and more to hit that threshold trigger. So other research has shown you actually need a negative nitrogen balance once in a while to keep those receptor sites for amino acids and nitrogen sensitized. And so you get a bigger anabolic response. Uh, other people have talked about this, even with cortisol, you know, that's a big marker. You know, you can't overtrain, don't train too hard, don't train too long per workout because cortisol, cortisol, cortisol. We got to keep cortisol low. We want it non-existent. Again, research shows it's the presence of that cortisol that gives you that almost super compensated uh, anabolic response because now your body is looking for a reason to really get out of that, that negative space. So I'm, I'm just saying up front, I'm not sure that testing just this negative nitrogen balance is the whole story. Uh, you, you guys hear me always contend the fact that a lot of these, a lot of these studies are pretty limited in scope. They're not for a very long amount of time. Nobody is doing a 10 year study on something like this. Um, and so it, 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 it's still open to interpretation, I believe. But some other considerations of this, let's, let's say that uh, Dr. Helms here selected six studies. And out of those six studies, let's say there were 300 subjects in all of these studies. Well, how, you know, what, which ones of those subjects actually had a lot of fat mass to lose? I mean, I mean, how many of them were really actively losing body fat? Does their body composition matter? If, if I'm at 30% body fat versus 15, does my protein needs and the response to nitrogen balance change? Uh, endocrine system changes, you know, is that a factor? Is, is, is somebody, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say perimenopausal because, you know, th these were younger studies, younger subjects, but, but again, I mean, that could differ. If, if I have a uh, 400 nanogram per deciliter hormone level, testosterone level, and Dan has a thousand, then may, you know, what is that? What is, is my protein need different from Dan's? And so a lot of these things are, are adding layers of potential uh, confusion or misinterpretation. Uh, so just to give you an example, and I think this will ring true very logically to you, fat-free mass losses. So, so literally losing muscle, losing lean body mass was less in populations who were least experienced in training. So they still had that kind of newbie level of muscle they could be gaining and tapping into. And as I said, people with higher body fat loss, their or high, higher body fat to begin with, their body composition level had higher body fat, then they also lost less lean body mass. So protein wasn't quite as important to them. So again, knowing your context is important. And, and this does roll into uh, Helm's perspective, uh, you know, desire to even do this study, which is people who are dieting harder, getting super, super lean, AKA physique sport, you know, do they need more protein? So the conclusions uh, were, yes, I'm not going to go through all of the analytics because we have a lot of stuff to go through here. You guys could, could look up the study on your own and see some of the charts and graphs and individual findings because they do go through each of those six qualifying studies to say, here's, you know, here's what this one found. Here's what this one found. Here's what this one found. And in a good meta-analysis is kind of cool because they will typically, you know, list every single study almost on an X, Y axis chart and show the different variables that were investigated for each study. And then just on a grid, you can see, did this one agree with this one? Did this one agree with this one? You know, what were the rates of, of fat mass loss versus lean body mass loss and so forth? But, but here was their conclusion that if you're going to be somebody with, with, with a calorie deficit environment and you're training pretty aggressively and you're, you at least have some experience in the gym so we can assume that your training level is, is pretty intense, then the, the best nutrition interventions for protein intake were 2.3 to 3.1 grams of protein but here's where they changed the ball game a little bit, at least in terms of just, just language of fat-free mass. In other words, lean body mass. So the RDA is based on body weight, which I think, again, is very limiting because you could have the same almost lean body mass. Like, like imagine my frame right now, I'm 175 pounds at 15% body fat. 
What if I was 250 pounds at 30% body fat? What if I was 500 pounds at 50% body fat? Does my protein need change that much? You know, actually not. I mean, I mean, yes, some, but, but not, it's certainly a bell curve. So you just have to interpret these conclusions with a little math. So if, if you look at me now, uh, instead of looking at 175 pounds times the RDA, now you have to get my fat free mass, which would be 149 pounds. So if I were to consume 2.3 grams, which is the low end, uh, the Helms meta-analysis would say, well, if, if you're dieting, Joe, and you're getting this calorie deficit, you're going to get pretty lean, probably for like a bodybuilding contest, then we recommend, <coughs> excuse me, at a minimum, you have about 150 grams of protein a day. And I think that's very reasonable. I mean, I think that really puts, puts people in the pocket of that, that RDA recommendation of, of very, very close to two times the RDA. But you could benefit, Joe, going all the way up to 3.1 grams per kilogram of lean body mass, which would be 210 grams of protein, which is 3.3 times the RDA. And as I said, there, there are a, a lot of good studies that show up to three times the RDA does have some benefit for a lot of people, these specialty populations, including, you know, lean, aggressive training bodybuilders and athletes. Um, so again, I mean, we're kind of, we're kind of framing this out to say, okay, where, where's the minimum and where's the maximum, where do you get the most benefit? So I, I think this, this is a, is taking us really to the heart of the bullseye. And so even though I think there are questions, as I mentioned, between how we measure this clinically I really do think some of the studies that that Helms went through, you know, did show that this is is very appropriate and, and it at least works for me. It has worked for my body, you know, composition. Obviously, I've been doing this for 25 plus years with clients, and, and a lot of them love to do this this deep level of metric analysis, and, and it has stood, you know, that that uh, test of time as well. So, one more thing that I thought was very interesting, and this was almost just a little sidebar in the discussion in this meta analysis. And you guys know I love this because I teach this all the time. The it, protein is is one big variable, and that's of course what we're looking at. But it doesn't live in a vacuum. You're consuming protein with other calories. So what if I consume protein in a low carb diet or protein in a low fat diet? Does that affect my lean body mass retention? Of course it does. And what they found is just a little sidebar is that restricting fat. So you could keep more carbohydrate in was way more protective of both performance and lean body mass protection. So as I've said for almost 30 years, once your minimum protein levels are met, once your minimum needs are met, there is not a lot of advantage to more protein. And by minimum, first of all, we have to define that minimum as per your goal, if your goal is to maintain lean body mass and strength and performance, I'm saying minimum is, is right in this, you know, perhaps two times the RDA to three times the RDA level, you know, then carbohydrates become your best friend. Then carbohydrates are more metabolic than fat. Carbohydrates are more anabolic than fat. So let's, let's move on. Cause I want to show you one more thing before we open it up to a little discussion. And that is that uh, I looked at another study, another name that you will know, Brad Schoenfeld, uh, even um, Alan Aragon, and you probably know James Krieger. So, uh, you know, three people in our industry who are very um, active in social media, very active researchers. And um, they wanted to look at protein timing. And I, I always have to chuckle because I, I feel like most people who are talking about protein timing are, are really taking a shot at this book because in 2004, Drs. Ivy and Portman, and, and I, I opened this up for the first time in 15 years this morning, and I still have my bookmarks and dog-eared pages in here. And, and uh, just a quick review really showed me why I, I feel compelled to continue to protect these guys and their work. Um, first of all, they don't need me to protect them. 
these are two of the, I mean, back in 19, or I'm sorry, back in 2004, uh, Dr. Ivy, for example, received his PhD in exercise physiology from University of Maryland, his postdoctoral training in physiology and biochemistry from Washington University Med School, published over 150 research papers at the time, a fellow and former ambassador for the American College of Sports Medicine, blah, 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 blah. Portman, just, just as robust of a CV. And, and they created this particular, um, I wouldn't say controversy, because it was just dogma. This, this book was like the Bible for competitors almost 20 years ago. And it was, it was, it, it created this, um, this, I don't want to say point of contention, because it wasn't contended at the time, it's contended now, but, but this concept that timing matters, that if you really want your best recovery, then what you eat, how much you eat of it, and when you eat it really does matter. And that was an era. This was the 90s. This was when, when, when sports supplements were really coming onto the scene. Metrics was the first big breakthrough in protein in a long, long time. And that was in the 90s. Then came EAS. All of the studies on creatine and, and things like HMB were starting at that time. And, and it was an era where people were really just diving headfirst into these nuances of what we could learn and study with specific nutrients and, and even concepts like timing. And now the pendulum has swung because the, these kinds of studies are now out there to be picked apart as they should be. That's the scientific method. But now it seems like everybody, including Schoenfeld, has kind of swung to the other side. We're like, yeah, it doesn't matter. It, you know, as long as you get enough protein per day, it's not a big deal. And, and I, I like that. Like I'm in that camp. I don't like people to rely with too much specificity on really bizarre variables that, that are, are, you never know if it's, it's, it's unique to your body type or your needs, your goals, your context. So I do think people overemphasize the minutia that some researchers end up purveying, even if it's not their intent. I mean, everybody has their agenda. So if I'm selling a supplement or I'm selling a specific diet methodology or something, confirmation bias is going to lead me to find all of the studies and the people that agree with me. And I'm going to pack all of them into my corner and I'm going to defend the living shit out of those people. Like those are my buds and, I, and that's going to be my songbook forever. I'm totally anti that. So I like, I like that, that people, you know, do, uh, you know, look at some things like this, but I think there are some serious limitations. And as much as I love Brad, I will say that, um, and he does great research. I mean, a phenomenal researcher. He, I, he's, I love his brain. He, he wanted to pick this apart at, you know, comparing control groups to, to strength studies, another meta-analysis, by the way. And, and hypertrophy slash bodybuilding analytics. So he got way more than a, well, yeah, but just over a thousand total subjects that he compiled for all of his qualifying studies for his meta-analysis, uh, you know, 43 studies. And his, his results were this. I'm intentionally a little bit light on going through his methodology, uh, and I'll explain why. So right off the bat, in just their summary as, as part of the abstract, they say looking at strength and specifically talking about the anabolic window, which I'm going to explain a little bit here in a second, instead of telling somebody that you, you need to eat protein 10 minutes after you train, or if you're an, if you're a track athlete, like you, you get off the field, you've been, you just done a three hour track practice. You need to go eat protein, you know, 10 minutes after that, or maybe within an hour, the anabolic window has been stretched to an hour, sometimes even two hours. But uh, looking at studies that, that look specifically at those criteria, Schoenfeld and Aragon and Kreider, or not Kreider, uh, Krieger, uh, would say, um, you know, strength analysis, it really didn't matter. Like if you're a power lifter, you're probably not in a calorie deficit anyway. You're eating a ton of food. You can bench press, you know, for an hour, maybe not eat for two hours, and you're fine. You're not missing any benefit to that. Hypertrophy analysis, though, they actually had to contend uh, or, or give ground on the fact that there, were, there was up to a moderate significance for bodybuilding type athletes. So now consider this, uh, anybody here who is a physique sport athlete, you know 
how desperately you want to gain another pound of muscle. You know how badly you want to maintain all of your lean body mass when dieting. And so their conclusion was protein timing nutrient. I, I'm going I'm to limit it to protein timing. That was the scope of their study meta-analysis. Just not a big deal, but hypertrophy specifically up to a moderate significance. If somebody said it's moderately significant for you to get protein pretty quickly, wouldn't you say, well, that's okay. I don't mind. Like I can take a protein shake in my gym bag. It doesn't hurt me. If it's a moderate potential gain, that's what we're in this sport for. But it just seems to me, it just seems to me there's this agenda to knock off this era, all of the research block that's there for the last 20 years, all of the researchers who did that, like their body of work is here. And now new researchers have to find a way to get their name in papers, have to find a reason to get their name. Like if I just say, if I'm a new researcher and I say, yep, those guys were right. Like, where's my career? That doesn't help me. You have to be somewhat contentious to be known. And so an awful lot of people end up trying to pick apart these things and show why those people were wrong. And now I've got the better, more updated answer for you. And again, I, I love everybody I'm talking about here. I love all these guys. I've met them personally. I've spoken with them alongside them at science conferences and so forth. They do great work. But here is what I think this study is misleading regarding. And it's that doctors Ivy and Portman aren't talking about protein alone. The most important point of all of their work is insulin and how recovery and the anabolic threshold is not driven by protein alone. These are the guys for 15 or 20 years who had competitors dragging around 50 to 75 grams of maltodextrin and dextrose and mixing that into their protein shakes. Because it's when you get that insulin response after training, you do get a super compensation effect. You do get a massive increase in nutrient uptake, including the amino acids that you consume with that simple sugar. So I just, I get, I feel like some of these researchers who are trying to take down the, the conceptual framework of nutrient timing, including protein timing, are missing the boat that it's not just protein alone or amino acids or nitrogen balance alone. This is why if you look back to all of my early writings, even in the, the natural bodybuilding magazines I was writing for 25 years ago, I have consistently my entire career said the single two biggest meals, most important meals of your day are pre-workout and post-workout. Even if you're 3% body fat, you're a week or two away from a contest, you're in a calorie deficit. Do not skimp on your pre and your post-workout meal, even if you're an athlete, not, let alone bodybuilding. You got, you got 23 other hours of the day to diet. You've got 23 other hours of the day to be in a calorie deficit and work on fat loss. When you're in the gym and you're recovering from that workout after the gym, you have to do everything you can to be anabolic in, in that, that recovery phase, rapid recovery. That's what this whole book was all about. You know, that's what all the research, I mean, all of these guys with these meta-analyses looking at six studies and 43 studies, these guys have that many more pages of studies that they cited. And they were working with athletes. These, you know, like Brad and like Eric, these guys were, were heads of, of physiology departments, universities, working with a lot of athletes. They were working, I believe, as University of uh, Texas in, in Austin, uh, where, where Ivy was. And, and it's not like these are just a couple of nerds in a lab writing papers. They were working with top Division I college athletes. You know, these were their, their study participants. So, um, so I do think, like, I, I, I will always stick to the framework of a study or a meta-analysis and say, here's what they found. Here's here, this good information. Here's how and why we can apply it. But I, I, I just don't think people are giving credit to the specificity of some of the recovery points we can have. And that's, um, you know, that that's a little bit of a shame because I think the more modern current researchers are, are not being quite that specific. That's just kind of the era we're in. But um, 
let me open it up to you guys. I'll see if you guys have any questions and we can uh, we can go from there. I'll start what? us off there, Joe. Thank you, Dan. I did the math while you were talking and I, uh, what you got me on right now is perfectly uh, consistent with that. Uh, the math says 198 grams of uh, protein per lean body mass. And I figured that out and um, I'm at, I was at 200. So kudos, right? Uh, but I noticed you bumped me up this week to 225 uh, a couple of times, last week and this week a couple of times. Could you explain why uh, that might, I mean, for a physique athlete who's getting ready to compete in a couple of days, why that is a good strategy? Really, really good question. So for those of you guys who may not be aware, if you look at my social media from this week, Facebook or Instagram, you'll, you'll see a picture of Dan who competed last week, won yet another master's level championship. And, uh, you know, super lean, like, like just, you know, separated quads to the bone, lean abs. And, and so we've, we've met our goal for his first contest of the year. To Dan's point, one week later, he's on stage again. And after that, we have another, you know, few weeks until his final contest. So for a guy who we got lean enough to win his first show, his, he, he and I both agree that, you know, hey, this was good enough for a win, but, you know, could really use a little bit more tightness in those glutes. So we have a little bit more body fat that we're trying to attempt to lose, but also in the context of really being protective of lean body mass. And for the second show, just being a week from the first, instead of saying, hey, let's, let's protect lean body mass and, and let's get you fuller by just jacking carbs up, which, you know, a week is not a lot of time to become more sensitized to, you know, glucose and, and glycogen storage and all of that. So one way that you can increase your glycogen levels or glucose levels is to just be more glycogen sparing. So to give your body a little bit more protein, especially evenly distributed, you know, I, I did ask you, would it, would it, would it be difficult for you to add one extra ounce of protein to three different meals? You know, let's, let's get that 20 to 25 grams of protein that way. So it's not like a major change, but it's just to take that first step. So now I anticipate between now and even your final show, we're going to keep protein levels there fats up just a little bit to equate with that protein increase. And now we're going to start stair-stepping carbs up. I mean, look how high your carbs were today and, and yesterday compared to the last six months. And yet you're still losing body weight this week. And so you're, you're in that acceleration of metabolic building where the more food you introduce, as long as it's incremental, all of a sudden you're getting higher NEAT levels, you're getting higher intensity of your training, your metabolic processes are increasing cellularly across your whole body, 60 to 100 trillion cells in your body. And so, you know, don't be surprised, Dan, if you're eating 400 grams of carbs, you know, before your next show and, and still just barely hanging on to body weight. Yeah, and a, and a quick comment on that. On uh, Monday, I did a uh, heavy leg day and I hit some serious numbers that I haven't hit in quite some time. Exactly. At the lightest I've been, I was strong. Right? I was really strong. So uh, uh, that's all. It's awesome. It's it, it works. Good, good to feel when you're supposed to be depleted and feeling awful, right? You're you're doing PR work in the gym. Yeah, especially when you see some of these young guys. I haven't drank water in three days, and I'm and I got a gallon of water that I'm down in. Hey, you, you want some of this? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Different topic, but, you know, again, uh, you know, following the science and uh, looking at, you know, what you did 20, 25 years ago, you know, about uh, questioning the norms, you know, because when I was competing in the early 80s myself, I mean, all we had was what did Arnold do? What did Franco do? What did, you know, Frank Zane do? And so we tried to do the same. And who knows if what they wrote was really what they did. Right. Yeah. That's, that's another story completely. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks Joe. I appreciate it. Good deal, Dan. Thanks for being here. Any, any other questions or comments? Somebody's jumping in. Stacy, go ahead. I have one. Yes, ma'am. Um, for pre-workout, mm. what is the time frame that you should do that? Like before? 
Good, good question. Um, it, it does kind of depend on your time of day of training. So if you're waking up and you train at 6 a.m. And, and like the food you consume then is all you have in your bloodstream, very, very different from training at noon with a meal or two under your belt or 6 p.m. So that that matters. Um, so w- w- interestingly, in the Schoenfeld meta-analysis, they did have to yield to the fact that there were a lot of individual studies that show very aggressive nutrient timing enhancement, such as one particular study showed that six grams of essential amino acids were, had just as much impact as taking 20 or 25 grams of, of like protein. And, and literally did, I, I think, I hope I'm not misquoting this, but I think it literally doubled the, you know, amino acid levels in the bloodstream, or, or at least that, that nitrogen balance. And so while other studies didn't show things like that, some studies did. And again, I think it goes to context because as they alluded to, I didn't read this on the slide, but they, they thought that some of the problems with previous studies where the statistics weren't quite as, as up to date as they could have been now, the coding was different and so forth. And so they just thought, you know, there were just some analytics that you couldn't really trust in some of these older studies. Yet there were at least some studies that really did show some great benefits. So to answer your question, um, if you're training on an empty stomach in the morning or you wake up and you're going to the gym, you need something that's going to be digestible, uh, as simple as possible. So you get those, those blood bumps in the, in the markers. And, uh, so I recommend something as simple as, um, you know, this is where I, I, another thing I quote became famous for, or at least started was pop tarts. You know, 15 or 20 years ago, I wrote an article in natural bodybuilding and fitness magazine where I said, man, you know, a pop tart, 35 grams of simple carbs, five grams of protein, five grams of fat. Like it's a great simple carb. And all of a sudden a year later, every gym bag in America had a box of pop tarts in it. And, and I, and then I did the same thing with Reese peanut butter cups. And so I, I like things like that, but if you're really being health conscious and you're in a calorie deficit, it could be as simple as a rice cake with a little peanut butter or two rice cakes, or it could be a half a cup of Cheerios with a scoop of protein powder or half a scoop of protein powder pre-workout on that empty stomach. You just need something to get you into the workout and going. And then that's what makes the post-workout meal even more important to stop that catabolic process. If it's later in the day, your blood amino acid levels are probably pretty high. Your blood sugar levels, liver glycogen are at least as stable as they will be that day. And so it's not quite as important, but I still kind of recommend the same thing. You know, I certainly feel best, especially in a calorie deficit. If I have not eaten a whole meal for two to three hours, and then I have that same small kind of pre-workout meal because you can also just say, well, I, I ate this great big lunch two hours ago, so I don't need a pre-workout meal. And you probably don't. But at the same time, I, I like to schedule it so I do get the benefit of that little increase in blood glucose and blood amino acids. And if you really don't want the food, that's where you can do five grams or six grams of branch chain amino acids or essential amino acids. Because again, I think very reliable studies have shown that that much concentrated branch chain amino acid um, intake is just as effective in your bloodstream as taking a full serving of protein. So you can, you can do that with a much lesser gut load. So would that be like something if you didn't want to have food, like a drink or one of these powders? I don't have, I don't, I've never taken uh, like, I'll take some, I'll drink some pre-workouts, but I've never purchase like the branch branch chain amino acids or anything like that and taking it before like most of the pre-workouts I've ever tried are basically caffeine I mean yeah I mean they're not that none of them so far say that they have those but and and I something funny for you Stacey let me interrupt you for just a second so before the first powdered branch chain amino acid product came out, which I think was Extend by Cyvation, uh, you could only get branch chain amino acids in capsules. And so there were people like, I cannot remember if it was Charles Poliquin or Mario Pasquale, one of those guys 
would have people take a bottle of branched chain amino acid capsules in the gym in like every 10 minutes, you're supposed to take like two capsules every 10 minutes, two capsules, every, you know, and it's really funny now, but you know, now just the powdered drink mixes kind of do the same thing. You get that amino acid content over time. What, I mean, you may have talked about this. I got in late. What's, what's the, what's the reason for having these, these branch chain amino acids in before you work out? What's, What's the goal? It's just to get your blood nitrogen levels high enough so that you're protecting yourself against catabolism. Because if you get into a negative nitrogen balance, now instead of having the amino acids to protect or even add to your muscle recovery, you're stripping amino acids off of your muscle tissue. And so that's that was the whole reason of nutrient timing and, and immediate ingestion of, of nutrition after hard, hard training of any sort was to start repleting your body of those things. So you, you are arrest that catabolic process. And so again, when people come out with a meta-analysis saying, yeah, that doesn't matter. You know, yeah. For hypertrophy strength, not a big deal. You can, you can eat whenever you want. And they do make, they do make the point, which is absolutely valid. More than that, what matters most is just your total protein intake for the day. Like that matters most. It doesn't matter if you have great, you know, immediate post-workout nutrition, if the rest of your day is just a shit show of, of inconsistency. So, you know, that, that's, that, that should have been their main point. And, and I wish they would have been a little bit more detailed saying, well, you know, for this population, not a big deal, you know, power lifters, of course not, because they're, they're never in a calorie deficit anyway, bodybuilders in a super calorie deficit, just like Helms said in his. Like when you're in a calorie deficit and you're dieting, yes, there is a justification for higher protein. I think they could have easily made the point and proven it that you get an increasing amount of need and usefulness for great post-training nutrition, including protein, because that's the context you're in. Not for everybody, not for everybody all the time, but in that context, absolutely. Absolutely. 